0: Today on Question Period, War Criminal.
1: Russia does not have a place at the table. Brutal evidence
0: of mass Russian war crimes escalating attacks on civilians. Is Russia getting ready to expand its war to countries like Moldova? We have a rare interview with the Russian ambassador to Canada, who has openly lied about Russia's intentions before the war on this program. How can he justify the overwhelming evidence of war crimes? The Russian ambassador joins us next. We'll put the evidence to him. Then, how far will the West go to fight Russia? Will Russia use nuclear weapons in Ukraine? The former CIA director of the United States, General David Petraeus, joins us. Then, right-wing run... I consider myself a
2: conservative candidate. Yes, I have social conservative policies, but we're all
0: conservatives. The social conservative MP, Leslyn Lewis, who has openly supported the truckers and questioned the safety of vaccines, is running again to lead that party. Will her views connect with conservatives? Leslyn Lewis joins us to find out. This is question period. Let's go get some answers. A horror story of violations perpetuated against civilians. That's exactly how the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, Michelle Bachelet, just described evidence emerging about Russian war crimes in Ukraine. The UN also confirms 5,264 civilian casualties, over 2,300 deaths since the war began on February 24th, but that number is going to grow. There's no end in sight. Recently, the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, has claimed success in the besieged port city of Mariupol, but the mayor there has rejected that claim. Ukrainian forces have held out there for weeks amidst brutal bombing. Thousands of civilians have been trapped with very little food for help. New satellite images there also show a new mass grave. This, as Canada's Deputy Prime Minister Krista Freeland says, Russia should be kicked out of the G20 for its unprovoked invasion.
1: Russia does not have a place at the
0: table of countries who have come together to
1: maintain global economic
0: prosperity. So what is Russia's ultimate goal in Ukraine? And how does Russia justify the illegal and brutal war it's conducting? Let's find out. Joining me now is Russia's ambassador to Canada, Oleg Stepanov. Ambassador, it's good to have you back on the program. Uh, You were on this program on January 23rd, and you told me when I asked that Russia had no intention of ever invading Ukraine. Let me remind you what you said.
3: Uh, I once again can assure you there are no uh, intentions, uh, no desire, and no will for Russia to uh, engage in any military uh, conflict or military operations vis-a-vis Ukraine.
0: Ambassador, that was a blatant lie. You knew it. A month later, on February 24th, your country invaded. Why should anyone believe what Russia says or what you say about Russia's war in Ukraine now?
3: Well, Evan, I appreciate you being direct and uh, calling uh, uh, my um, words a lie, but I would disagree with you. Because uh, during my public appearances in January and in February, prior to the start of the special military operation, uh, I- You mean man- the war? I just well, want to make sure be- we're
0: clear. It's, it's, it's not a special military operation, it's a war. People are dying, oh, you know that. I, let Let's Just call it what it is, it's a war.
3: Well, I'm an official and I operate with my government official position, okay? But uh, if you uh, recall, Uh, Several times um, during my public appearances, I mentioned that, yes, there is no desire, no will, no intent to uh, militarily uh, involve in uh, the crisis in in Ukraine. However, there was one caveat that uh, uh, my government and myself stated clearly unless there is a provocation on behalf of the regime in Kyiv. And uh, right now uh, we have uh, 100% concrete proof that uh, with the help of your government in particular, the uh, authorities in Kyiv planned an offensive military operation against uh, Donbas Republics. But, 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 but uh, Ambassador, uh, sorry, I'm right. What was done uh, in 1995 in Serbska Crimea well, sir, so uh, N- Ambassador, Ambassador,
0: let's be clear. I, I just, we can't, sp- your country invaded Ukraine. It was, the pretext to an invasion was putting 200,000 troops on the border and then invading. You'd already snatched Crimea before in 2014. Sir, so let's be clear. And, and I, I want reality to interfere with the propaganda. Russia invaded. Russia was supporting the separatist movement in Donbass before. And now Russia has bombed Kiev, Lviv, Dnipro, Mariupol. Your country has invaded and is conducting an illegal war. There is no pretext to invade another country. In fact, it violates Russia's own agreement, the 1997 founding agreement with NATO. So what is the justification to invade Ukraine and, and, and destroy civilian lives?
3: Evan, uh, you perfectly understand that the operation that was undertaken by Russia is to protect the uh, people of Donbas and uh, uh, of Donetsk and Lugansk republics.
0: You're, you're protecting them uh, by bombing again, Mary? Again, I'm just asking, again, what, was the massacre in Bucha protecting was the people in Donbas? H- how does that work?
3: Well, Evan, your government and the governments of the West failed to notice that for eight years, The uh, consecutive governments in Kyiv waging war against civilian population of Donbas, against their own citizens, who are ethnic Russians. And uh, if you remember, we were very clear and very direct in our communication with the Western governments and uh, with the assistant parties with Berlin and with Paris, saying, guys, there is a way out of the situation. It's implementation of the Minsk agreements.
0: There's growing evidence of war crimes committed by Russia in Russia Ukraine. According to the recent report from, the human, from Human Rights Watch, which, by the way, I, ha- I have in my hand, there's ex- extensive evidence of executions, unlawful killings, torture in the town of Bucha, hundreds of bodies, over 600 as of April 15th have been uncovered, lying dead in the streets hand-tied behind their backs, they're executed. There are satellite pictures that you have seen where these bodies are there before the Russians left. How does your government justify what look like war crimes in places like Butcher?
3: Evan, I would totally disagree with you, and I would not accept the uh, uh, Human Rights Watch Amnesty International evidence because, you know, the um, uh, reputation is dubious in in this regard, but uh, I had an extensive conversation with uh, senior officials in the global affairs, uh, discussing uh, that particular butcher uh, uh, situation. And I was uh, showing them at those photos that all uh, bodies, or at least those that were showing in the international media and social networks, uh, were the white armbands, white armbands, is the sign of the, uh, either uh, Russian, uh, personnel or those people, uh, at the, on the territories, uh, that were controlled by the Russian forces who identify themselves as friendly to, uh, Russian troops. Sir, and sir, those sir, people I, I... Lying, they're dead. So it obviously shows that they were killed by the punitive It's a lie. Again, sir,
0: it is a lie. Maxar satellite images of Bucha taken on March 18th, March 19th, March 31st, provided to places like Reuters and others, clearly show bodies in the street nearly two weeks before Russian troops left. Just a second. This is important. I'm going to show just a second. This is important. These bodies were in the streets when Russia controlled Bucha. So, sir, you're, the Russians are asking people to. Did they? Did these people
3: execute themselves? Kiev regime is waging war against those, the, against they, their own citizens, using them as human shields, shelling indiscriminately the civilian Sir, uh, sir, in- sir, sir, in- sir. In- sir, in- sir in- then, uh, re- and then, Ambassador, I'm not going to let you.
4: Sir, as, as I, I, I respectfully it, I it, am not posters, you, you know.
0: cannot yell over me and invert reality you're asking us to believe that Russia invaded Russia launched missiles Russia indiscriminately bombed there's evidence there's pictures our own CTV journalists have been to Bucha they have seen and now you're saying the Ukrainians bombed their own cities executed their own uh, have destroyed Mariupol have destroyed your country yeah, has yeah. invaded how do you think this destruction yeah, and yeah. death is happening How do you think it's
3: happening? Evan, uh, please. Every military expert here in Canada would tell you that Russia doesn't have It's outdated missiles that only Ukraine employs. Uh, We have trajectory. We have a site of launch that was launched from the Western Ukraine, from the territory controlled by the Ukrainian government. And that's the signature. Of how they uh, do those things, they, in in order to whitewash themselves, they uh, whitewash what? I'm just trying to understand: is
0: is the Russian Russian. contention that that Ukraine is attacking itself? That Ukraine? That's the contention that Russia
3: invaded to stop Ukraine from attacking. It doesn't make sense. Ukrainian troops are shelling their own citizens in order to present it as if it was done by the Russians. Let me ask you this: two more
0: questions. Will Russia use tactical nuclear weapons? Will Russia consider invading Moldova?
3: <laughs> of course not. What for?
0: I want to ask you, you and I have spoken before, and, and, I, and I'm, I'm asking you a serious question as a, as a human being. You are defending a leader who has lied, has allegedly and with overwhelming evidence committed war crimes, I'm wondering what your moral line is. Do you, how do you become an apologist for these kind of uh, alleged war crimes and death? Is there a moral core that kicks in with you that you finally say, I cannot justify the slaughter anymore? When does that kick in?
3: Well, uh, Evan, to start with, I will disagree with you when you operate with such allegations as war crimes. It's a a presumption of guilt that uh, in the West often used against... It's the United
0: Nations. It is the United Nations.
3: No, it's not the United Nations. I'm literally reading the
0: United Nations report from Michelle Bachelet from the United Nations Human Rights Office of the High Commissioner. There's evidence of uh, of war
3: crimes. It's uh, one of the uh, UN bodies, and um, I have a reason to believe, with all due respect to Madam Bachelet, that uh, he is biased in, in this case. But uh, I, uh, as an ambassador, as a Russian citizen, I'm a patriot of my country, and I stand with, with my president, and I stand with uh, the troops on the ground. And the, me and my colleagues here at the embassy, we are 100 percent confident that we stand on the right side of history at okay. this time.
0: Okay. You have no moral qualms about what's happening. I will leave you with one question. When will Russia leave Ukraine?
3: Uh, it all depends what we call Ukraine. Uh, we recognized, as you remember, we recognized the independence of Donetsk and Lugansk republics and conducting the operations in order to protect them. Uh, we'll see what uh, the rest of the Ukraine, uh, when the truth is uncovered about the nature of this regime, uh, decides about their own future. In the international uh, law, there are two principles, one principle of uh, uh, sovereignty and the other one of self-determination. And we'll uh, let the people of Ukraine to decide what they want.
0: Uh, Ambassador Stepanov, uh, I appreciate you joining us. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Evan. Okay. When we come back, social conservative surge. She backed the truckers. She's doubted the medical validity of vaccines for children. Can MP Lesley Lewis win the leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada? We find out next when she joins us. Stay right here with Question Period. She may not be drawing the biggest crowds or making all the headlines, but in the 2020 race to lead the Conservative Party, she was the emergent political star. Leslyn Lewis, then the unelected, openly social conservative lawyer with a master's degree in environmental studies, came a surprising third place. She went on to win a seat in Parliament in 2021, but then she was sidelined by the then leader Aaron O'Toole because of her controversial views on things like vaccines. But now, Mr. O'Toole is gone, and Leslie Lewis is running to be leader again. It's a key moment in the race. This Friday, April 29th, leadership hopefuls must submit $300,000 required in registration fees, along with 500 signatures from party members. And Lewis has already done so, so she's in. But what kind of party would she lead? And can her social conservative values appeal to a broader scope of Canadians? Let's find out. Joining me now is Conservative Party leadership candidate, the MP, Leslie Lewis. Great to have you back on the program. Thanks for having me again, Evan. You are a social conservative in a party that is trying to broaden its appeal to Canadians. Your party needed to win bigger in places like Ontario and Quebec. You didn't. Do you think you can do that? Do you think a social conservative candidate can, can break through in those two provinces?
2: Well, Evan, you know, I consider myself a conservative candidate. Yes, I have social conservative policies, but we're all conservatives. And by nature, if you look at large cities like the GTA, like large um, urban centers, you will see that the majority, a large number of people are from the immigrant population. And these individuals share conservative values. They're people who took chances and and took risks to leave their home, to come here for the Canadian dream of owning a home, educating their children. And they also have strong faith and and family values, beliefs. And so they are a population that can be reached by our social conservative values. And I believe that if they
0: see themselves within the party, they will gravitate towards the party. uh, You know Andrew Scheer was tripped up because of his views on, on, on issues like abortion. So let me get your view on abortion. Would you, if you were the Prime Minister, roll back abortion rights in Canada?
2: Evan, the reason why I did so well last time is because I'm a unifier. I believe in building bridges. I am pro-life. I believe that people who are pro-choice, we can have a conversation. In fact, many of my closest friends are pro-choice, and we have great conversations. And what I found out is that when we do not allow politics to divide us we actually have things that we agree on evan but do you agree do you agree the majority of people evan i have i have four pro-life policies that i will be rolling out and they are policies that the majority of canadians agree on i believe in finding unity starting from things that we agree on such as pregnancy care centers and let's build on what we agree on okay but i just want to be specific on that when some abortion
0: but but conversations are important access is important to people they want access to safe abortions in provinces like new brunswick and other provinces will you support that or not evan i believe in the safety
2: of women of course i believe in the safety of women And as I said, my policies focus on what unites us. And really what unites us now is making sure that women who choose to uh, have their babies, they may not have planned for it and they might find themselves in an unfortunate situation, Evan. And they may decide that they want to give their child up to a loving family for adoption. We want to make sure that we have those supports for those women. And I think that those are some life
0: policies that the majority of Canadians agree on. Let me talk about another divisive issue that's come into this campaign. Support for the trucker protest. You openly supported it. Jean Charest, who's running against you as for the leadership, said he characterized that as an illegal blockade. And he said you can't pick and choose to support it. Why did you support the uh, trucker protest? And do you think Jean Charest is right that you made a mistake supporting what he calls an illegal blockade? Well, Evan, I was one of the first...
2: Uh, members of parliament to come out in support of the trucker pro- protest and I was the only one at the beginning in this race that did support the trucker protest when it was not popular to do so some came out after they announced for leadership but I was the one who was in, was the first to, to do that and Evan the reason why I supported it, I I believe in law and order. I do not support blocking critical infrastructures of any kind. But you, but did. But you did. But those but, infrastructures were cleared. These individuals in front of parliament, they were in front of parliament, Evan, and they wanted to speak to the people whom they elect to to hear them and. It was a huge lost opportunity, Evan, that the prime minister didn't send a contingent out to speak to these individuals. These are law-abiding, tax-paying Canadians. Respectfully, Leslie Lewis,
0: like you're an elected official. I, I have to push back, respectfully, when you were supporting them, the leaders, the people collecting the money, the organizers had a petition that wanted to overthrow elected officials. You saw it. I covered it extensively. You were that's supporting. Not true, Evan. No, that, Reza Lewis, know that you, that's I can- not the Canada Unity Evan, website you collected the to money. We spoke about this before. We
2: spoke about this before. And you know that that is not true because nobody was charged with acts of sedition. If there, if that was true, why were mischief charges laid? Acts of sedition charges should have been laid. And this is the type of misinformation that's dividing but but, so this You're country. a lawyer.
0: You're a lawyer. You, re- you read the Canada Unity. You saw their Memorandum of Understanding. I you did saw, not see their Memorandum. Me- well, how see did you that, support Evan. a trucker, respectfully, how did you re- re- support a trucker protest that published on a website a Memorandum of Understanding? How would you support a group without reading their, their manifesto? I don't understand that. Evan, I support democracy. I support the people who
2: were standing in front of Parliament and wanted the pe- the elected officials that they pay their salaries to listen to them. Some of these individuals came all the way from B.C., and they should be heard because they are Canadians. And, Evan, I don't support invoking the Emergencies Act and confiscating people's property. There were people who bought T-shirts for $20 who could not pay their mortgages. There were people whose properties... Uh, bank accounts were frozen, all without due process, and mischief charges were laid, Evan. If what you're saying is true, then there is some negligence because sedition, acts of sedition charges should have been laid.
0: Okay, Let's talk about COVID. You questioned the plan to vaccinate children aged uh, 5 to 12 on social media. You wrote, never have Canadian children been used as shields for adults. Parents question vaccinating kids 5 to 12 without long-term data a low risk of fatality and cautions echoed around the world when the treatment neither prevents transmitting or getting the virus. Public health officials have long said in fact uh, they have done proper testing and there are very many benefits. Did you not trust the science behind vaccines and could you answer the question did you ever get vaccinated?
2: Uh, Evan, I completely trust the science around vaccines and the statement that you read out was a statement that I addressed because, as you know, I'm a parental rights advocate, and many parents did reach out to me. Their concern was that the vaccine would be mandatory for them to go to school. And because we do not have long term data, Evan, that is a fact. These parents were concerned, and I raised those concerns. With respect to my vaccination status, Evan, I believe in medical privacy. I have not disclosed my vaccination status, and I will not disclose it because I believe in a person's medical privacy. I think that we are encroaching on a very, very dangerous territory to normalize people prying into people's
0: personal medical files, Evan. Okay, but, but first you said never have Canadian children been used as shields for adults. You're not, that's your words. What do you mean by that?
2: Well, Evan, these are, as I said, this statement that I put out was statements on behalf of parents. Parents, these are things that parents said to me. As you know, you have very limited characters in a a tweet, and I expanded on that in an op-ed in my local newspaper to raise the issue of parental rights. And so these are concerns that parents raised to me. And as somebody who's an elected official,
0: I have the right to... Bring those issues forward. Okay, so so you're saying it's not your belief, those are issues of your constituents, is that it? Absolutely. Okay, Uh, let me do rapid fire as I've done with all the candidates. Um, Price on carbon, divisive in the Conservative Party, would you get rid of a federal carbon tax? Yes, Evan, I would. What would you put in place, if anything?
2: Well, I don't believe the carbon tax um, is really improving the environment when we don't know whether it's revenue neutral we have not earmarked it i would implement policies that actually reduce emissions right. that incentivize businesses to find innovative technologies that encourage people to uh, recycle and that reduces conservation so mm-hmm. build, looking at things like building materials and changing the way we interact evan on a daily basis
0: with the environment. Child care, if you were the prime minister, would you repeal the child care deals that the uh, Liberal government reached with the provinces and territories?
2: No, Evan, because young parents are struggling. I do believe that the child care policy is inadequate. When you look at people in rural areas, Evan, they will not be able to take advantage of them as people in in more urban areas. In addition, there are people who have opted for private childcare who this plan does not cover. And I think that this plan needs to be
0: um, comprehensive enough to cover all of those individuals. Okay, there's a long road ahead, and, and I always appreciate our conversations, Leslie Lewis. They're always uh, enjoyable. I really appreciate you joining me today. Thank you, Evan. I appreciate it also. All right, coming up, a world at war. How far should the West go in fighting Vladimir Putin? Could the war in Ukraine escalate? Will Putin use nuclear weapons? The former CIA director, General David Petraeus, joins us on that. Stay right here with Question Period. The signals could not be more ominous as Russia escalates its brutal attacks on Ukraine. A Russian general recently hinted that Russia could expand its war to neighboring Moldova, and just last week, Russia carried out a test of a nuclear capable intercontinental ballistic missile, which Vladimir Putin said would make his enemies, quote, think twice. All this comes after a series of humiliating defeats for Russia in Ukraine. After retreating from key Ukrainian cities, the major Russian focus has turned to conquering Ukraine's eastern Donbass region and southern Ukraine. So, could the war in Ukraine escalate and widen? Could it even go nuclear as some fear? How far? should the West be prepared to go? Let's find out. Joining me now is the former CIA director for the United States. He's also the former commander of the International Security Assistance Force um, and the commander of all U.S. forces in Afghanistan. He also oversaw all U.S. and coalition forces in Iraq. Retired General David Petraeus. General Petraeus, thanks for your service and always welcome uh, to the program. I want your read on this, sir, um, through your eyes. how this war is going, how far Vladimir Putin right now is prepared to go, and if we're at this very dangerous inflection point?
5: Well, it's a pivotal moment in the war, certainly. Uh, as you noted, uh, the Ukrainians won the battles of Kiev and also Chernihiv and Sumy, two other northern cities. Um, and they defeated the Russians. They were—Russians sh- were prevented from doing what they sought to do, which was to capture the capital— topple the government and replace President Zelensky with a pro-Russian figure. But this is a moment where clearly uh, Russia is going all in on the east. They pulled their forces again out of the north, shifted them around to the east. I don't think that they've had enough time to really prepare those forces adequately. Many of them were rendered combat ineffective. In other words, they are unable to accomplish their mission without having their personnel losses replaced and their equipment uh, losses replaced as well. Uh, So they're pushing very, very hard. Uh, They're trying to reduce that final pocket of opposition in Mariupol. But the idea that they would go all the way to um, Moldova, I think, is more than a bit of a stretch. Uh, They haven't even been able to get through the city that is midway between Crimea and Odessa, the major Ukrainian port on the southwest part of the country, directly on the Black Sea. That's roughly the vicinity where, of course, the uh, Neptune anti-ship missiles hit the flagship of the Russian Navy in the ba- in the Black Sea uh, and sank it. So I think you'll see the the focus will be on the east and southeastern parts of Ukraine. Uh, that's where Russia can make some progress. They they think. Um, I'm not sure I would count on that. Uh, and the Russian commanders undoubtedly are under pressure to produce something for Vladimir Putin to announce on 9 May. Uh, when Moscow celebrates the uh, victory in World War II uh, with a major parade every year.
0: Okay, General Petraeus, um, if you were back as director of CIA or back in, in field, uh, just quickly, your assessment, um, how seriously do you take the potential that, that Vladimir Putin could use tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine?
6: Well,
5: I think you have to be concerned about it. Uh, In fact, we know that the U.S. National Security Council staff uh, has pulled together teams to red team this, if you will, to determine what could they do, what might it look like, and and most importantly, how might the U.S. and the coalition respond to that. Um, So I think it's possible and more possible certainly than when this unprovoked invasion began, but I still think unlikely. I think it is still seen as a threshold uh, that Russia would cross that could really unite the rest of the world. Again, keep in mind that there are still countries that abstained in the voting uh, to suspend Russia's membership in the United Nations Human Rights Council. There were others that abstained or even voted against the condemnation of Russia uh, over its invasion. I think it would be very, very difficult uh, for those countries, in a sense, to stay neutral or, uh, or to support Russia, uh, although certainly some will. North Korea, Venezuela, you're not going to see them stray from right. the path of Russia. But but I think a number of other major countries would find it difficult to support Russia if it indeed crossed that nuclear right. threshold for the first time since the end of World War II.
0: J- John Portraise, you've seen the requests from Ukraine. President uh, Zelensky is saying, we not only need weapons, artillery, we need no-fly zone. NATO has said no, that would escalate. Should NATO reconsider that as this war deepens?
5: Not at this point, I don't think. Uh, That might be on the menu of options uh, if indeed uh, nuclear weapons were used. But I think that avoiding the direct confrontation between the U.S. or the NATO. Uh, forces and Russia is still advisable at this time. Uh, Look, that would not end well for Russia. Uh, And not only would we take down any Russian aircraft that uh, illuminated our aircraft with their radar or even were in the same airspace, we'd probably also have to take out their uh, integrated air defense systems as well. And it can just keep on expanding. And I think, by and large, the U.S. administration has been right to be cautious about that, to try to avoid uh, expanding the potential of this conflict, noting that it is obviously horrific, uh, and the actions of the Russians have been shown to be truly barbaric and committing war crimes uh, in multiple cities where they've been located.
0: General Petraeus, uh, first of all, I really appreciate you joining us. Please come back again. Thank you so much, sir.
5: Pleasure was mine. Thank you.
0: All right, still to come, Inflation Nation. Inflation in Canada reaches a 31-year high, but has it reached its peak? And how will this play out politically? BNN Bloomberg's Amanda Lang joins us next on The Scrum. Stay right here with Question Period. Runaway rates, consumer prices going up almost across the board as officials try to rein in inflation and lower the cost of living. It's an affordability crisis. Inflation jumped to 6.7% in March. That's a 31-year high and, of course, greater than expert projections. Meanwhile, the Bank of Canada hiked its key interest rate in an effort to curb that inflation. But has inflation actually peaked or can you expect even greater spikes? And how are politicians addressing The Inflation Nation issue. The Scrum is here to talk about the politics of inflation. Joyce Napier is the CTV Ottawa Bureau Chief. Marika Walsh is a political reporter for The Globe and Mail. And our special guest is Amanda Lang, host of BNN Bloomberg. All right, uh, good morning to everyone. Amanda, let's just get at the the economics of this. Experts are saying the surge of inflation is temporary. It's caused by all sorts of things, uh, supply chain disruptions, the war in Ukraine. Where is this going?
4: Well, we can say that it has peaked because we measure inflation year over year and we're about to get to a year ago number that was already high. So the big jumps uh, will be behind us just mathematically but the price increases in real terms, will stick around. This comes to this question of what is transitory, how long does it last? And the ultimate reason we we worry about that, Evan, is when you and I insist on a higher wage, when our service providers raise their prices, when products at the grocery store go up, they don't tend to go down easily. Uh, And that is, therefore, entrenched price increasing. And that's where we are. The next few months, will, will say how high they stay, but they don't, we don't see prices coming down. Once our plumber has raised his price, rarely does he offer right. a lower one down the road. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, prices go up, salaries go down. Uh, Joyce, how is the affordability issue uh, being tackled by politicians? How are they trying to address this? What do you see?
7: Well, what I see is, is, is kind of an interesting mixture of fantasy and reality um, and of, of sloganeering. You know, slogans are really good. Just inflation, that really sounds good. Um, but it, is it really true? Um, you know, maybe just the spending, the government spending, yes, was it was it one of the causes of inflation? Perhaps. But a small part of it, a very small part of it was due to that. And what would have, for instance, a politician like uh, Pierre Poilievre, who is running to be the leader of the Conservative Party, what would he have done? Would he have not spent that money? So I, I find that there's, there's a lot of that. You know, they, they, they sort of put... Um, reality and and fiction or good slogans um, sort of in a martini shaker and they shake it all up and then serve it to the public. And it sounds really good and it's very catchy at those big rallies and people, you know, seem to be quite happy with what they hear. But unfortunately, what they hear is not necessarily either a solution or even, you know, even sometimes close to what, what actually the causes of what we're living now actually are.
0: Marika, let's start at the government. Uh, This is something that Justin Trudeau, as he's trying to sell the budget across the country, is is trying to talk about. Um, Does Mm -hmm. he have the puzzle piece to put something together that, that resembles a solution?
1: Well, they're saying they do. They say that the budget shows that in things that try to spur housing, for example, and the supply of housing. They talk a lot about ensuring that there is that supply. The problem for the government is that those are longer-term issues that they are going to address, longer-term fixes that do not address the immediate concerns of Canadians when they're at the pump, when they're at the grocery store, when they're going about their daily lives. And that's why it's such a potent attack line from the opposition parties, from the Conservatives, and on the Conservative leadership race trail, because people are feeling it. It does feel real to them, as Amanda spelled out earlier. And so the government has not as many tools to address the immediacy of it. Amanda, so what
0: what do economists say about the power of governments to do anything?
4: You know, Joyce is getting at, I think, the, the key point here, which is that these are complex issues. The solutions to them are hard, uh, and that then they often miss the mark. So the central bank and, our, and any fiscal policymakers are trying to walk a very narrow line where, yes, they want to cool prices, but they don't want to collapse the housing market. They want to slow down inflation, but they don't want to trigger a recession in Canada. But the fact of the matter is those are actually potential outcomes here. If you actually want to slow down it, how do you get the plumber to lower his rates? You cause a recession, and you and you make business scarce for that man. He will offer you a better rate. Uh, we and so I would say we shouldn't let the opposition parties get away with oversimplification. Uh, stop them in their tracks. And the federal government, you you could have a whole conversation about fiscal side of this and whether they if they raise taxes, it would have a really cooling effect. If they stopped spending so much, a cooling effect. That should be where the opposition party is focusing, not on some kind of weird hazy idea that they're not doing something they might otherwise do. It's very hard stuff.
0: But the politics of inflation, though, Marika, I, I mean, I'm, I'm looking. Joyce mentioned Pierre Polyevra. Yeah, he said the Bank of Canada says Bitcoiners lack financial literacy. Of course, he's big into crypto and Bitcoin. This from the same people who promised we'd have deflation right before inflation hit a 30-year high. It is our central bank that is financially illiterate. What do you make of the politics of, of attacking institutions like the central bank when people are genuinely frustrated as they try to understand inflation?
1: Well, to Amanda's earlier point, it's uh, sloganeering that we know from past election campaigns, past leadership campaigns, that it does actually work to rally a group of people to attack institutions, especially an institution like the Bank of Canada that operates really not in the front headlines of day-to-day life in Canada, Evan. I think, though, to the point of what happens now, the budget has spelled out what the government will do with inflation, and to Amanda's point, they are not raising taxes or dramatically ending their deficit spending, although it is less than the pandemic. And so that leaves then the difficult choices to the Bank of Canada. And the question is, how fast do they raise rates now? All right,
0: uh, thanks. I got to leave it there for now. Amanda Lang from BNM Bluebird, thanks for joining us. I know Joyce and Marika are sticking around because coming up next, housing hypocrisy as affordability becomes one of the main issues in the conservative leadership race. Can leadership candidates both own rental properties? and rail against others who are doing the same. Nanos Research founder Nick Nanos joins us on the Scrum as we dig into the conservative leadership race right here on Question Period. So as the conservative leadership race approaches another milestone this week with the deadline to pay registration fees, candidates are putting out a series of bold new ideas. Now the party has officially approved applications for eight candidates and the clock is ticking for them to pay their $300,000 in fees by this Friday. With that kind of money, some policy ideas are the basic table stakes. Here's so you have Canada Scott H. who wants to, to scrap the prices. supply management system, the that's the quota and tariff to system, to protect dairy land. farmers. He says it makes milk and carry eggs carry more and expensive. Jean Charest is promising to end lockdowns with health care reforms. Pierre Poilievre yeah. yeah. continues yeah. to talk about housing affordability. Yeah. He is saying that there is a rich investor class, as he says, that's buying up housing for rent for profit. And he calls that quote, very, very dangerous. Well, that is until he has to explain why both he and his wife are also rental property owners. It's perfectly legal, of course. Over 59 MPs at least do the same thing. But is this the case of housing hypocrisy? And how could the policies and plans affect the polls? The Scrum is here to dig into the Conservative leadership race. Joyce Napier, our CTV Ottawa bureau chief, is back. So is Marika Walsh, political reporter with The Globe and Mail. And our special guest is Nick Nanos, the founder of Nanos Research. Okay, Nick, welcome to the party today. What issue has emerged in this race? What candidate is dominating from what you're seeing?
6: Well, what candidate's dominating definitely in the social media is Pierre Poiliev. The fact of the matter is he's attracting significant rallies, he's putting out ideas, and on the social media front, that's who's winning. But the fact of the matter is it's not who wins on Twitter that will win this leadership. It will be the individual or the leadership candidate who can sell memberships. And this is where Charest, candidates like Sheree and Patrick Brown come in because they're also likely to have very strong organization on
0: the ground right now. Yeah, Marika, we, we were talking about housing affordability because Mr. Poliova has, has railed against the so-called investor class for taking up supply. He's part of that class. He owns uh, a property, a co-owns, and so does his wife. They rent it out. Perfectly legal. Uh, is that a problem for him if this is one of his main issues?
1: I think it certainly takes maybe some of the sting out of the bite of his attack against the investor class. I'm not sure, though, given how many Canadians like him have investment properties, have rental properties, rent out something. I'm not sure that it actually is this deal breaker moment. I think that is something that we'll have to see how it plays out from the other candidates. Do the other candidates also have rental properties? All of those kinds of things help to inform it. But I'm not sure it's the main reason why Mr. Polyev's supporters are there. I think it's much more about this broader appeal that he is, is connecting with around this return to normal life, access to things that we used to have and now feel like we can't afford.
0: Uh, Joyce, you know Quebec politics as well as anyone. Uh, Scott Aitchison brought in the idea to end supply management. Uh, He says he wants to scrap it. It makes milk and cheese. Dairy products more expensive at a time of high inflation. Remember, Max Bernier proposed the same thing during the 2017 race. He lost to Andrew Scheer, who went on famously to drink a quart of milk at the press gallery dinner to show that he supports dairy farmers. What impact could that be on what it means to be a conservative?
7: Well, clearly Mr. Aitchison has uh, written off Quebec, uh, probably, uh, and uh, he figures it's popular in the rest of the country. Uh, look, this is a leadership race, so we're going to hear a lot of fiction, uh, you know, blended in with reality. And, and you know, Mr. Aitchison could wish to do that. Uh, I don't know how easy it will be. I don't know what kind of blowback he would get. Uh, but certainly uh, it wouldn't land well, and uh, he, he would not do well. It makes me smile uh, because, because uh, you know, he, he should uh, just you know, rewind and go back to what happened to Maxime Bernier. Um, look, it, it, it may be a good idea, but you know in Canada, when you want to change these things, when you want to take away things that have been given years ago and that perhaps are even dated, uh, can okay. we have even a, we we haven't even had a debate on that? Why do we still have it? So I mean, that's that's a complicated and a complex issue, uh, and mm-hmm. the question should be, really, should we still have it? Would probably a more would be a more reasonable one than a candidate saying I would scrap it.
0: Well, he's certainly making headlines. Let, let me go back to you, Nick. Um, I had leslie Lewis, social conservative candidate, on the show earlier. Um, Everyone's trying to figure out what is this Conservative Party. What are you seeing in terms of the dynamic of what is driving what it means to be a Conservative?
6: Well, the fact of the matter is, is that if the Conservatives want to have any chance of winning the next election, they have to have a party or a coalition that can accommodate all those diverse views. However, Evan, what is happening right now is the Conservative Party is looking like the only federal party with any kind of new ideas. Maybe not everybody likes those ideas but compared to the Liberals and the New Democrats where nothing really significantly new is coming out, the Conservatives are looking like they're at least talking about ideas. And here's a little polling trivia. Parties without leaders are usually more popular than parties with leaders because there is nothing to repel voters. So for those voters that like Charest, they go, hey, maybe Jean Charest might be leader of the party or Patrick Brown or Pierre Poiliev. So watch for those Conservative numbers. Here's a bit of a prediction. Watch for those Conservative numbers, start to lift. It'll be interesting to see whether the Liberals and New Democrats panic a bit if the Conservatives, without a leader that might repel some voters or attract voters, whether if those numbers start changing, what the Liberals and NDP might do.
0: Boy. Talk about cynical! They're trying to elect a leader, and you say that could actually <laughs> drop their polls. Uh, well, Marika, what are you watching for as this uh, this is unfolding? We haven't seen much of Patrick Brown. He says he's signing up a ton of mm-hmm. leadership, and then you've got sort of outsiders—a guy who ran uh, twice to be the leader—has s- launching something called Center Ice Conservatives, saying the center is where conservatives got to go. How do you mm-hmm. calibrate all this, Marika?
1: Well, I mean, to Nick's point, every leader and leadership candidate might want to rethink their goals if uh, they're more popular, not in the top job. But I think that there's some key benchmarks coming up for the race that are really important that will help to focus the race, focus this debate around what the party is, and that is who actually raises the money needed to get onto the final ballot, make it to those debates in May, and that will really focus things up. I will say, though, scrapping the CBC or defunding the CBC and scrapping supply management are not new conservative ideas. They're ideas that have been debated at leadership races in at least the last two. And so it's, it's those things that are done to rally the base, rally members, and get support ahead of these key fundraising markers and to get noticed when it's such a crowded yeah. field right now.
0: Yeah, signing up, members. All right, well, we'll find out how this goes. Nick Nanos, uh, Joyce Napier, Marika Walsh, great race going on there. Uh, Thanks for joining us. That is Question Period for this week. Thanks for watching. Remember, hug your loved ones. What a privilege. I will see you on CTV's Power Play at 5 p.m. Eastern tomorrow on CTV News Network, and we will be right back here on Question Period in seven short days. Take care.